Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of eSharp magazine. Go to eSharp.eu for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Tony Connolly. Tony Connolly is the Europe editor of RTE, the Irish broadcaster. Yes, Tony, we are going to talk about Brexit, I promise you, but I'd rather start by not looking towards the future, even the, the short-term future, but actually the past. As you chronicle in your book, Brexit in Ireland, now in its second edition from May last year, um, the Irish government, before Article 50 was triggered in March 2017, uh, had this window of opportunity, if you like, or nine months of anxiety when they weren't quite sure what would happen from, from their perspective and what ex- how what extent the E26 would handle the upcoming Article 50 negotiations. I mean, as you say in your book, but maybe for the benefit of our listeners who haven't read your book, tell us a bit about how the Irish government approached that, that period between June 16 and, and March 17. It was a difficult uh, period because the result uh, was, was shocking to the Irish government, but they, but they had... Uh, Almost treated it as uh, as almost like a domestic referendum. You know, the government had put so many resources in into following the campaign, and they had sent uh, ministers over to the UK to try and uh, campaign as far as protocol permitted uh, for a, a Remain vote. And and Kenny, the Taoiseach at the time, was over quite a few times, and he had got quite a good relationship with David Cameron, but. I think it gradually dawned on the Irish government uh, very shortly before the referendum that this could go the wrong way from from their perspective. Um, so they they had done a fair amount of contingency planning, and but but I I think it's fair to say that their instinct the day after the referendum was to have a bilateral track with the UK right. um, to try and figure out how this would be managed. The I suppose the government had prioritised the Irish peace process as the, as the main collateral damage if there was a leave vote, uh, but they had looked at um, all of the implications for customs, for the food, agri-food industry, for mm-hmm. energy, so they had been scoping a lot of the issues and they had quite a detailed contingency plan uh, in place, but um, I think because of the very strong bilateral relations between the two countries that had been at their zenith, I think, you know, mm-hmm. uh, just previous to the referendum, that was the natural track to go down. I mean, that Theresa May's first um, meeting with the foreign uh, the head of government was with Enda Kenny in, in July of uh, 2016, just after she became uh, prime minister. And a lot of the rhetoric and the aspirational um, picture that was painted at the time was none of us want to, to av- uh, go back to the borders of the past. We want to avoid a hard border. But it, it gradually dawned on the Irish government that... Um, that that aspiration was all well and good, but if Britain was going to start signalling that they wanted to be out of the single market and customs union, then mm. uh, how do you f- how do you reconcile that with the aspiration? Um, and then it also became clear that that within the British system there was. Um, no clear direction of travel. They didn't know exactly what the UK wanted, um, how they were going to get it. There was still a lot, also a lot of jockeying for position within the British government as to who would be the preeminent uh, mm. primus inter pares Brexiteer, torch leader. Was it going to be Boris Johnson or Liam Fox or David Davis or, or Theresa May? So uh, gradually as the autumn of 2016 uh, dawned and Michel Barnier took up his post. I think the the Irish government were politely told that <laughs> this, the solution to the Irish border would not be found in Dublin or London, it would be through Brussels. And there was a key moment in January of 2017 where Phil Hogan, the Irish uh, commissioner, wrote a very strong 
uh, editorial in the Irish Times to that effect that uh, the British government didn't know what they wanted. The Irish government had to put themselves firmly in the EU's right. camp. Uh, and at that point, um, the, the, the government realised that they had to start educating the, the European Union, not so much the institutions who had a certain amount of historical memory mm -hmm. about uh, the Northern Ireland peace process because you had the Barroso Task Force on Northern Ireland, you had the peace funds and so on, but uh, individual capitals and of course the further away you get from the western seaboard of Europe the less knowledge people would have about the Irish uh, situation. Um, so, so that was really when they started to uh, try and get their analysis into EU thinking. But I suppose to be fair to the Irish government <coughs> and even the UK uh, to a certain extent when just after the referendum result was known and uh, nobody knew when the British government including Theresa May would, would trigger Article 50 so there are no formal rules of engagement right so both the Irish government and the UK government were up to a point free to actually make, up, make it up as they went along right and there were no rules that are forbidding them to just engage as best they could on either side. Yes, I mean, um, the, the, I think the British side were trying very hard to, um, you know, to, to talk to the Irish, uh, and it was it was a, it was a difficult balancing act for for the Irish government because they did have this um, tradition going back to 2011. There was a f there were formal structures for the two civil services to meet mm. uh, once a year. There was going to be a there would be a, a key meeting of the two leaders every year, um, and you know there were a lot of bilateral issues which they would normally discuss and uh, normally that would not be a problem but but suddenly so many of these issues that they discussed like energy or uh, or whatever um, you know had an EU component to them and then mm. suddenly they were wondering well can we talk about this or can't we talk about it right. is this because uh, remember the mantra no negotiation without notification right um, so it, it, was, it was a tricky balancing act uh, for, for the Irish government and I think Brussels was keeping an eye on what they were doing with the well, British. Well, how, how reassured, how you know, confident was it with the Irish government at that stage, even when Michel Barnier was appointed formally and even, be, and even before the triggering of Article 50 by the, by the British government, how confident were they that there would be this, now we've seen two years down the line, extraordinary solidarity and consistency and discipline of E26 vis-a-vis Ireland. They, nobody seems to have broken ranks uh, in, in that period. I mean, but how how confident at the beginning were at the outset were the Irish that that would be the case? Well, they they had no guarantees that the solidarity would be there, but the, I think they knew instinctively um, from the context they'd had with the institutions uh, that the EU would be supportive because first of all, Michel Barnier had a history as a regional affairs commissioner uh, of mm. providing funding for Northern Ireland. He had been over in Northern Ireland. Uh, at a very difficult period in the post Good Friday Agreement uh, process, the uh, the institutions were not up and running. The executive wasn't up and running, and Michel Barnier had a had had a sort of grounding in that, and he he, he had uh, quite a grasp of the tribal complexities of uh, Northern Ireland uh, politics, um, and also the EU had invested, uh, you know, political and financial capital in in the Northern Ireland peace process. That, so they. They were anxious not to do anything that would screw it up, mm. uh, if you like. Um, and you know that the Irish government, through its its permanent uh, representative in in Brussels, had been circulating uh, little pedagogical yeah. uh, four pagers to right. the key uh, negotiators and, and key figures within the council and the commission, just to say, look, these are the complexities of the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, this is the this is the peace process 
flourishing. This is how Brexit could damage it, um, and this is this is how the Irish economy could be damaged. And uh, so, we, you know, we need your support on this. Um, and then the, the the actual procedure for getting Im- for embedding the Irish analysis into the process uh, began around December of 2016, when the the Irish side were invited to submit a paper to to the European Council. So, so pretty early on, in other words, the, the Irish were were kind of reassured that there would be the solidarity and it wouldn't be breaking away as time went by. They were they were pretty confident, without being presumptuous, that that that's all. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, the, the, they had probably more confidence that the institutions uh, would be sympathetic, and of course, Michel Barnier and his team. Um, you know, had that advantage of knowing the Irish yeah. process, and also, uh, let's not forget the Article Fifty Task Force had to protect the single market as well. So, so they they were all over the complexities yeah. of this. I think when it came to different capitals, the, the the Irish had to do quite a bit of outreach. And I think Charlie Flanagan, the foreign minister, made about seventy visits over that period. Yeah, I'm insisting a bit on that point because it strikes me that the British government took a bit longer to realise that they couldn't play this kind of divide and conquer strategy. Mm. They, I think, they got it in the end, but it took them a while to realise they just couldn't, as you say, pick off certain member state capitals. Yeah, and pit them against certainly the institutions. Yeah, no, I, th- I think um, the. the that that part of it, the divide and conquer allegation, if you like, that that really started after the negotiations began, because um, you know once the Article Fifty had notification had been given, then the European Union responded with its negotiating guidelines, and that's when they they highlighted the Irish case in paragraph eleven of the negotiating guidelines, which said. This is going to require flexible and imaginative solutions. Uh, it talked about the all-island economy and uh, the Good Friday Agreement, um, and you know th- there I think the tension set in because the British side w- was consistently saying, "How can we solve the Irish border?" Uh, in the first part of the negotiations, it is a future relationship issue. It's to do with trade and customs, so we can't possibly sign up to something before we've se- seen how that is. Uh, and the Irish and the EU were saying, "Well, actually, no. We we uh, we, we we might solve it through the future relationship, but we need yeah. a guarantee. Otherwise, Ireland becomes a bargaining chip in the negotiations, and nobody wants that." So I think that's where the uh, schism between the two sides sort of set in, and uh, uh, and and then it just became a much more tense relationship. Well, moving it forward now, fast forward two years on, we're almost <coughs> at the beginning of March 2019. Um, could anybody, people like you and, and the Irish government or even other players, have predicted that the backstop would become such a, uh, a, a difficult uh, problem to crack in, and, and be you know, on, on the point at which the whole negotiations could, could founder? Nobody predicted it, I don't think, because uh, you'll remember in the summer of 2017, the big... Uh, Flashpoint was the 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 money the exit bill. Mm. Um, the the Irish question was seen as a somewhat exotic um, kind of side issue, and uh, and and people didn't really un- fully understand it. Uh, notwithstanding the efforts of the Irish government, yeah. um, n- nobody anticipated it would become this uh, major existential yeah. stumbling block. Um, and I think partly it, it became that because the DUP uh, suddenly had the balance of power in Westminster. And when you translated this flexible and imaginative solutions into the backstop, then the DUP and and by extension the British government saw this as a constitutional threat to Northern Ireland because you know once the backstop was um, 
you know, articulated and fleshed out as an idea, then, you know, it became a, a red rag to a bull to the Conservative Party and the DUP, um, and 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 that then, I mean, because Theresa May's government sur- depended on the DUP for survival, they had to take an extremely uh, sort of uh, binary, yeah. um, dramatic black, black uh, stand on it. So. But on, on the black backstop, you know, a lot's been said uh, until now uh, on both sides in Britain. Uh, Brexiteers remained as about you know whether or not a, back, uh, a border is needed in this day and age for about the customs checks, regulatory checks, etc., etc., on goods uh, passing through the two countries. But what I'm interested in is actually on the Good Friday Agreement aspects because there you, again you have some of the Brexiteers who are who seem very dismissive of the of the the importance of the of the of, of the Good Friday Agreement in the context of the of, um, Brexit and the negotiations around the backstop. Um, uh, but other people who were involved directly in the negotiations like people like Jonathan Powell, Chief of Staff for Tony Blair, when Blair was Prime Minister, adamant that it is a key point. I mean, where do you stand on that? I mean, are frankly, are the Remainers sometimes guilty of overstating the, the, the importance uh, of uh, the, uh, the danger of reintroducing border posts between the two countries? Well, the, 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 the starting point would be um, the, the, f- the fact that the Good Friday Agreement was an extremely elaborate um, settlement uh, and it, it had to be elaborate because it uh, it ended 30 years of conflict uh, perhaps uh, 70 years of, of uh, lack of a settled uh, <laughs> entity in, on the island of Ireland um, and it required very painful concessions on on both sides um, the Irish government uh, will will tell you that the Brexit referendum isn't the only referendum that has ever happened. There was the referendum to pass the Good Friday Agreement and it was carried on both sides of the Irish border with a much more substantial uh, margin than the Brexit referendum and uh, the Irish government changed its constitution uh, to facilitate the uh, Good Friday Agreement. They deleted Articles 2 and 3 of the Irish constitution which had effectively uh, laid claim to the whole island as its sovereign territory. They deleted that. That was a big concession by Irish nationalists and in return uh, for that and also for uh, copper fastening the consent principle so that you could never have a united Ireland unless you had the consent of the majority of people of Northern Ireland in in return for that you got uh, cross-border institutions you got a a new dispensation on uh, rights um, uh, on north-south cooperation uh, and that could only really flourish if there was no border, if the border became invisible. Mm. And the border became invisible because of the, of the internal market of 1992 uh, coming into effect, but also because of the Good Friday Agreement, so that took away the military uh, border. So, um, so, so, the, so the lack of a border allowed nationalists to feel comfortable with the mm. settlement. Um, you know, the, in, in a sense, the Good Friday Agreement put off a United Ireland by, by quite some margin um, but at least they could they could feel as they went about their lives that the border was not relevant anymore so you had this kind of almost de facto mm. uh, unitary island um, even though it had two sovereign bits of territory on it and um, and then and then that permitted in in turn a whole kind of you know op- uh, efflorescence of of, of, of cross border activity that wasn't necessarily delineated in the Good Friday Agreement but could 
take root because of the new from it. yeah so you had you had uh, cross border healthcare developed cross border education uh, cr- you know cross border trade you know because the two sides of the border had turned their backs to each other for decades but now they could they could actually interact and then you st- you, you had all this development of uh, integrated supply chains across the border right. for agri food and all of that was going to be threatened by um, by Brexit but also if you did have customs posts on the border then that the the infrastructure itself shatters that sense of there being an invisible border so and then of course as the PSNI the police service in Northern Ireland have said it also will become a target so not only do you have the the hearts and minds element of the Good Friday Agreement and, and what it achieved being challenged by Brexit, you also have a physical infrastructure which could, could then become like a, a target. target. Yeah. Right. Okay, maybe a final question, Tony. Let's bring it forward to the present day then, uh, end of February, early March t- 2019. I will not ask you to pass judgment or comment on <laughs> the House of Commons uh, debates going on at the moment and various votes coming up in the next two, three weeks. But I will ask you, uh, as a final question, um, where, where do you think the... Can the E27, uh, or could Ireland on its own, E26 plus and or without Ireland, can anything be done to try to accommodate some of these last-minute demands by Mrs May to to give new assurances, uh, legally binding assurances, she would say, to the, um, the, the backstop wording? Yeah, it, it's, it strikes me that um, Leo Varadkar, the, the Taoiseach, is in a remarkably relaxed frame of mind at the moment. Uh, I'm, I'm just back from Sharm el-Sheikh where he was there for the EU-Arab uh, League Summit and uh, he, he seemed to be kind of un, unperturbed by the ongoing um, work streams on trying to uh, change the backstop or provide further legally binding assurances. The thing is, the the back in December when you when Theresa May came to the European Council after after agreeing the withdrawal agreement, um, the, the Irish government were very uneasy about any additional legally binding protocols or additions or addendums or whatever. Yeah. Um, where they seem to be heading at the moment is some kind of text, possibly a joint interpretative statement, which would have uh, some kind of legal weight. Uh, but again, it would contextualise or, or spell out what's kind of already in the withdrawal agreement. Um, and that would be discussed at the European Council? In the well, the, the idea is that that would be agreed by the Commission and the UK through Michel Barnier and Stephen Barclay and Geoffrey Cox, the Attorney General, that they would agree that before March the 12th uh-huh. and then the the Parliament would have to vote on, on that new text uh, in whatever form it takes. Now I'm told that the content of the this text will determine what form it takes so <laughs> right. it's, yeah, we're yeah. still a bit in the dark about that. Right. Um, but then the, um, the House of Commons would effectively have to take Stephen Barclay and Geoffrey Cox's and Michel Barnier's word for it. Right. Uh, and so therefore they would have to pass this um, new text and the withdrawal agreement uh, and only then would the EU27 leaders uh, acknowledge and endorse it, formally endorse it um, and then Brexit would happen uh, at the end of March. Um, but that's that seems to be the plan at the moment. But uh, as we know, fraught with danger. Okay. Well, we have to leave it there. Tony Connolly, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. Thanks very much, Paul.